Okay, well, let us begin with a word of prayer this morning. Almighty God, we come to you thankful that we can gather again, that we can come together to study and to learn about you and how you continue to work in the world to bring about your kingdom. I pray that this time this morning will be a, a cog in that vast and glorious effort that we will all take something from this morning that we can continue to strive and work and pursue the goals that you have set before us so that you will ultimately be glorified. We thank you for the saints that have gone before us. We thank you for the the sacrifice, the blood, the sweat, the thoughts, the tears, and all the things that they contributed to get us to where we are so that we can work to get others to where you want them so that your kingdom will come and be glorious and eternal. In your name, we thank you for these things and we pray for these things. Amen. Okay, well, welcome back to Sunday School. So, I, <laughs> you know, it was, it was really strange. I was uh, thinking about when the last time we had Sunday School, and the last time we did, I was the one sitting up here. We had two classes to kick off our series, and then kaboom, that was the end. And I couldn't remember when that was. I was totally chronologically disoriented, so it, uh, I thought it was two years ago, but it turned out it was slightly less than a year, about a week less than a, a year. So here we are a year later, and we are continuing with our series, well, we're restarting our series on the history of the church. So we are going to be covering the first, at least the first thousand years of the church. And uh, whether we continue on into the Reformation and into the modern church remains to be seen. So vote yes if you want more. Um, <laughs> so uh, so we're, we're going to be looking at the church in Acts, and then we're going to move past the history of the church as it's recounted in Scripture, and we're going to be looking at church history, and, and how the Lord has worked through the church in history, and how we get to where we are now. But today, we're not going to do that, because I am going to today try to recap the first, since it's been a year since we were talking about this, I'm going to try to recap the first two classes in one class. So, this is intentionally truncated, but if you want to hear more, you can. I'm, I'm going to be just going over again the things that I went over in the, in the first two classes, and those can be heard on the church's website. So if you want to expand on what I'm going to be talking about today, you can listen to it online and get a little more uh, depth about what we're, you know, the introduction to our, uh, our series. So, the question then is, how did we get here? How did, how did there come to be a First Baptist Mount Shasta here in Mount Shasta, California? How did there come to be a church at all 
in California? How did the body of Christ get to California? How did the body of Christ get to North America? You know, there are believers that stand between every one of us and Christ. There is a line, not standing in opposition, but I mean there is a line of believers. Maybe some of them are in our families. Maybe they are not. Maybe you were brought to Christ by somebody not in your family, but that person who led you to Christ was led to Christ by somebody else. And it goes on back for 2,000 years. So there is a, a lineage of faith that exists for 2,000 years leading back to Christ and his disciples. So what, what is that history? How did we get here? And I will tell you, it's not been an easy journey for the church, but God has been present in every single step of the way. And he has been working in the lives of the believers that have gotten us to where we are every step of the way. So our hope through this class is to, to open our eyes and to reveal who, in some measure, obviously we can't talk about everybody, but some of the, the important figures that we should know about who got us to where we are. You know, who, who, who was leading the church in the year 5 AD 500? I mean, who was, who was the believer that was in each of our family of faith histories? Now, we don't know individually who that is, but there were men and women who were at work in the church that the Holy Spirit was working through that was persevering in the name of Christ that generations later would get us here. Does that make sense? That's what we're talking about. So, why does that matter? What? Well, it matters because we're here, but also because we are working for God's kingdom. And this, the history of the church is the history of God's kingdom. So we're, we're going to be talking about his kingdom for the last 2,000 years. Not the 2,000 years before, not Old Testament, not New Testament, but the last 2,000 years of his kingdom. Because his work does not stop when the New Testament ended. However, as with all things with God, the Bible is a pretty good place to start. So let's start with the Bible. And let's, let's think about how history is a part of the Bible. Not just a part of the Bible, but history is one of, not the only thing, but one of the utter distinctions of Christianity that separates it from every other religion or all the other false, the other false religions of the world. I'm saying that wrong, but you know what I'm saying. Um, God, in His sovereignty, has made His church, His, you know, the following of Yahweh, an intensely historical endeavor. When you think about the Old Testament, is the Old Testament, oh boy, my family just walked in, so now I'm going to be nervous. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, when you think about the Old Testament, especially, and I'm, I'm not discounting the first 11 chapters of Genesis, but especially when you get to chapter 12 with, with Abraham, 
And from that point on, the Old Testament is a linear trajectory through history that is deeply rooted in places and peoples that we know about. Who can tell me what, where Abraham came from? Can anyone tell me where he came from? Ur. Well, is that just a made-up name? No. You can go to Iraq today, and you can walk through the city of Ur. You can climb the ziggurat of the city of Ur. That's the chief temple of that city. So this is a, a, play, a, a, a place where the father of God's people was called out of. We know where that is. We can go there today. When Abraham left Ur, where did he go? He went to Haran. We know where Haran is. Where did he go after that? He went down into Canaan, and we know where that is. And all the places, Shechem and all these places that Abraham goes, we know about. And the same is true throughout the rest of the Old Testament. You know, there are so many names, it becomes a fog almost of Jebusites and Amorites and Perizzites and Edomites and well, you know, those are all real peoples, and we know where they lived. I mean, there, there is a, a it, the Bible, the Old Testament is grounded in history. The Assyrian Empire, this is something I've just, I've been studying for a lot lately, but the, uh, the Assyrian Empire was the greatest of all the civilizations of the ancient Near East. Uh, and it, you know, is infamous for conquering uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. And at its peak for about 150 years, it had six kings. And you can go to museums around the world and you can find artifacts and writings and statues of all six of those great kings of Assyria. And how many of those kings are called out by name in the Bible? all six. So when you read the Old Testament in Kings and Chronicles and Isaiah and many of the other books of the Old Testament, you're going to hear about Tiglath-Pileser and you're going to hear about Shalmaneser V and Sennacherib and Sargon II and Esarhaddon and Ashurbanipal. Do you know how many books we have from Ashurbanipal's library? Over 20,000. So when we talk about it being a historical faith, these are the people that are in the Old Testament. These are people that are historical figures. So God has chosen to move through history. But what was the greatest movement that he did in history? What? Yeah. He, the incarnation of Jesus Christ was God injecting himself, not just in action, but in person, injecting himself into time-space history. So that Jesus Christ is God himself in the flesh, injected into time-space history. Is that not an important thing to think about? Jesus himself put himself into history. Should we not then be historically sensitive? Does that make 
Does that resonate? I mean, God has chosen to function in this way. So we should perk ourselves up and pay attention to this. The whole Old Testament is a linear trajectory through history leading to what? To Jesus Christ, to the Messiah. And so now we are in the linear trajectory where everything was in effect rebooted by Christ, and we are on in the linear trajectory moving away from that and to his return. But again, there is a history, and we are a part of that. And God, in his sovereignty and in his grace, has chosen to operate in a historical fashion. There are no other religions in the world that are historical. So, I mean, who's ever, has anyone heard of Zoroastrianism? Okay, when was Zoroaster, you know, where, where was he? When was he? Or when was, was uh, Shiva or uh, Vishnu, Hindu gods, when were they present on earth? Well, it's not the same thing. When was Zeus here? You know, I mean, it's not the same thing, but we know a lot, more than we can even fill our minds with about the historical reality of God's working through human history. So, when we get to the Gospels, <clears throat> these are deeply historical books. Which book would you say, I mean, they're all historical, but can anyone think of which of the Gospels might be the most historically inclined? Luke. Why? He's accurate. Why is Luke accurate? I mean, they're all accurate, but why Luke is he preoccupied with that? Well, yes, but what's significant about Luke's ethnicity? He's Greek. He's the only Gentile in the entire 66 books of the Bible who authored one of the books. He authored two, but he's of all the authors of the Bible, Luke is the only Gentile. And what's, what does he bring to the table as a Greek? What were Greeks preoccupied with? History. Greeks, other than God himself, the Greeks invented history. Who's called the father of history? Herodotus. He wrote about 450 B.C., he wrote a history of the Persian Wars. Herodotus was the first person that we know of, other than, well, pretty much anybody, who wrote down a documentation of events for the purpose of documenting the events, not for the purpose of promoting a god or recording what happened in the seasons for harvest reasons and things like that, but he wanted to write down history for the sake of documenting the events that happened. And he was followed by Thucydides, who wrote a history of the Peloponnesian War, that was 400 BC, roughly, when it ended. And he wrote what most people point to as the first real in-depth history, where he says at the beginning, I am writing this to be unbiased so that everyone knows what happened. And that kicks off a tradition within Greek society of writing histories. And there are many other Greeks who followed in that tradition. 
How do we know about what happened back then? How do we know about what happened with Alexander the Great or with uh, Themistocles or other great Greeks? Well, we know about them because the Greeks wrote them down. And they, they wrote down what happened in detail so that people in future generations would know. Well, Luke is a Greek, and he is bringing that tradition into Scripture. So, there's a reason why Luke is the longest of the Gospels, and in a lot of ways, not entirely, but in a lot of ways, the most detailed. What else did Luke write? Acts. What's Acts? I mean, Acts is just a history of the early church. So God is using this person who has a cultural inheritance that is in line with the way God has been operating for for thousands of years already from the beginning, which is he is operating in history. So when you read Luke, he is filled with historical detail to a very finite degree. When it talks about the birth of Christ in Luke, how does it begin? In the days of who? Caesar, no, not yet, we're not there yet. That's at the beginning but when, of, of, Luke, of, of the book of Luke, but when he's talking about the birth of Christ, he says, in the days of Caesar Augustus. Well, we know down to the day, we know what day Caesar Augustus was born on, and we know what day he died on, and we know what day, the length of his reign. He ruled from 14 B.C. to 31, A.D. 31. So we know when Augustus was Caesar. We know all about him. I mean, not every little detail. We know that he was Julius Caesar's great nephew. We know that he was born Gaius Octavius, and that his mother's name was Adia, and that her father was Gaius Adius. And, I mean, we know all this historical detail, and Luke injects that into Scripture because he is saying in the days of Caesar Augustus. But it's not just Caesar Augustus. Who was the governor at that time? Publius Sulpicius Quirinius. I mean, it says that in Scripture. It says Quirinius, the governor, ordered them to go and to their towns. And so we know from various historical records, Tacitus, other Roman writers, when Quirinius was the governor in Syria. So, and we know all about his family, the Sulpicius family. In fact, one of his near descendants becomes the sixth emperor of Rome, Servius Sulpicius Galba. So we know all this detail. And that is giving us a very precise chronological pinpoint as to when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entered into time-space history. There is no other religion. There's no spiritual reality that is that historical, that historically precise. That sets Christianity apart. And it's not just the beginning of Luke, although, as you said, Herod, at the beginning of the book of Luke, it says, in the days of Herod. Well, that's another chronological locator that's telling us when the book is beginning. We know when Herod was the king of Judea. So it's filled with this kind of data. That's just Luke. 
Wow, that's a lot of wind. I love it. I love fall. It's my favorite season. So that's just the, the book of Luke. And I could go through Luke and Acts, we all could, and find 350 more, 500 more, who knows, other chronological markers that are going to tell us exactly when and where all these things are happening. These are not myths. These are not legends. These are, this is historical data, data that we can verify outside of the Bible. Mark is, in a lot of ways, Mark is the roughest gospel. I mean, it's the earliest. Its language is rougher. It's a lot terser in its tone. It's a lot vaguer in a lot of ways. That's not bad. I mean, that's a whole other discussion, uh, which, which is fascinating. But in Mark, it just says, in, in those, talking about John the Baptist, it says, in those days, in the days of John the Baptist. That's its chronological marker. Who's ever heard of Josephus? Does anyone know who Josephus was? He was a Jewish historian. He, he was Jewish, but he was a Romanized Jew. He was friends with Titus Flavius Vespasianus who was, guess what, the emperor of Rome. He was also the general uh, that sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. And guess where Josephus was when that happened? He was with Titus. He watched it happen. So Josephus witnessed these historical events, and he wrote about them in, a, in two histories. One is called the Jewish Wars, and the other is called the Antiquities of the Jews. So he was trying to document the history of God's people so that he could introduce them to Romans, in effect. Like, so the Romans knew who these people were. Well, Josephus writes all about John the Baptist, and he places John the Baptist in the historical continuity that we have. And so when Mark says, in those days of John the Baptist, that's another historical marker. And we have non-biblical sources. Not that it comes down to non-biblical sources. I'm just saying history is the thing that we know through all of the various sources, and we can continue to do history or historical inquiry beyond the Bible to verify the accuracy that it contains. John is interesting. John is often called what? The spiritual gospel. At least that's what the early church called it. So they, early on, uh, a writer named Papias, and you know, this is the kind of thing we're going to be talking about when we're talking about the history of the church. Who's who's Papias? Well, he's somebody that has influenced where we are today in the early church. But he said that all the other Gospels having been written, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we call the Synoptic Gospels, he says, the other Gospels having been written, John set out then to write a spiritual Gospel. And the book of John is filled with what we call high Christology because it is focused on God as Christ, the second person of the Trinity, whereas the other Gospels, they're not focusing it on Christ's humanity at the expense of his deity, not at all. 
but they're not focused on, on Christ in the same elevated deity that it is in John. That's not a knock on the other Gospels, and they're not denying his deity, but John is just, he is laser focused on that. How does it begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then, what does it say in John 1.14? The Word became flesh, and what? Dwelt among us. So here you have that injection of God Himself into time-space history. So John is concerned with this as well, but in his own high Christological way, he is addressing it. And he does it again in 1 John, the very beginning of 1 John. He says, that which was from the beginning, again, echoing what he says in, in his gospel, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father, and was made manifest to us, which we have seen and heard, which we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he is, he is concerned with... The Son of God, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, made what? What did they They saw Him. They heard Him. They touched Him. He's historical. He is, he is history. So, to be concerned with history is deeply biblical. What is... Think about in John 20, what, what, does, uh, what does Thomas want to do? Whoops, I went all the way back to Habakkuk. To touch him. And what does Christ invite him to do? To touch him. He invites investigation. He invites feeling and investigating to what? To know. So that you know. Now, blessed are those who believed without seeing, but I don't think that that invitation to investigation is an empty invitation. I think that all of these historical markers in the text are are invitations to investigation, to investigate the history that God has placed His church in and placed Himself in. As Jesus, in, as in, through Jesus Christ into that chronology. Does that make sense? So, should we ignore that invitation to investigate? No. So, we should be investigating the history that the Bible recounts, but also the history of what happens after the Bible. And that's what we're going to be doing in this particular class. And what is... As John said, what is the ultimate goal of that invitation? Yeah, and to believe. So, 
That is, that is our intent. So Jesus Christ has entered into history. And then He ascended into heaven. But is that the end? Does God's presence here end with the ascension? No. What comes next? The Holy Spirit. So what we're... We're in the church age now. We're going to study the history of the church. What you could really say is that we're going to be studying the history of the work of the Holy Spirit through His church. That's really what we're going to be doing. So, does that work end at the end of Acts? No. There's a, a line from the end of Acts to this morning. Right here, right now, there's a line. The Holy Spirit has been working through the, excuse me, through the church up to this present day and will continue beyond this present day. So we, you know, where does Acts, what is the final, like what is the climax of the book of Acts? There isn't really one. It just ends with Paul preaching and teaching in Rome. You know, there, it doesn't end with, with, I mean, what happens to Paul? What, what's his fate? Yeah, where does it say that that happened in the Bible? It doesn't. What about Peter? What's his fate? It doesn't say. The, in effect, the Bible kind of leaves us hanging. But it's not leaving us hanging without answers. It's leaving us hanging in, we need to know what happened. We need to investigate. And that investigation tells us that they were martyred. They died for Christ. But that's not, the Bible ends in such a way as the story is continuing. Even the people in the Bible, Peter, Paul, the other disciples, Timothy, Apollos, Barnabas, we don't know the end of their stories in the Scriptures because their stories continued beyond the end of Acts. And then, what happened to their disciples? What happened to Timothy's, Timothy's disciples? Does the Bible tell us what happened to them? No. Does, does what happened to them matter to us? Yeah. That's what we're talking about. We're going to talk about Timothy's disciples. In fact, we're going to talk about John's disciples, interestingly enough, in a couple weeks. John, there was, there was a writer... His name was Irenaeus, and we will talk about him in a couple weeks. Irenaeus was a Greek, but he became the, the leader of the church in Lyon, France. This is about 180, 180. That's really too alliterative. So, 180, in the year 180, you know what I mean. Well, Irenaeus wrote a lot, and we have a lot of his books still. So that's 180 years after the birth of Christ, we have a lot of books from a very prominent Christian. And it was challenged, he, he wrote a lot against what we call Gnosticism, and we'll talk about this in greater detail. And people would ask him, how do we know what you say is accurate? And one of the responses, not the only one, but one of them was, I studied at the feet of Polycarp. Well, who's Polycarp? Polycarp was a disciple of the disciple John. 
So Irenaeus was just one generation separated from John. I mean, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So Irenaeus had it on very, very good authority what John himself was teaching about Christ. Should we read what Irenaeus had to say? Yeah. There is a wealth of deep, enriching theology that came from his pen. And we have it still today. We could have it in the church library soon. So, this is, this is why we are studying what we are studying. So, any questions up to this point? No? Okay. What was that? Many questions. Okay. Um, so, where does that leave us? That leaves us with 20 minutes. And I still want to talk about the canon of Scripture. So let me just sum up. I'm leaving a lot out of what I talked about for the intro to church history last time. So if I whet your appetite, you can talk to me afterwards or listen to what I said a year ago. So, um, But let me, let me finish that by reading one quote. And that is by a man named John of Salisbury, who lived from 1115 to 1180 A.D. Why do I keep getting these 80s A.D.? Anno Domini. Um, and he says this, and he's, he's going to quote somebody who was one of his teachers, so from a man before him. But this is roughly 900 years ago. He says, our generation enjoys the... Before I... He was also a great theologian. He was part of the history of the church. This isn't a secular guy. He's talking about believers. So he says, Our own generation enjoys the legacy bequeathed to it by that which preceded it. We frequently know more, not because we have moved ahead by our own natural ability, but because we are supported by the mental strength of others and possess riches which we have inherited from our forefathers. Bernard of Chartres, that's his teacher, used to compare us to dwarves perched on the shoulders of giants. He pointed out that we see more and farther than our predecessors, not because we have keener vision or greater height, but because we are lifted up and borne aloft on their gigantic stature, which Isaac Newton, also a great follower of Christ, then paraphrased and said, if I have seen a little further, it is because I am standing on the shoulders of giants. We are standing on the shoulders of giants. We are standing on the shoulders of men and women who have loved, lived, sacrificed, bled, warred, and died in the name of Christ. And if we see a little further, we do so because... We have inherited from them many, many vast riches. For a lot of us, our understanding of the history of the church basically goes to the end of Acts and then maybe starts with Martin Luther. But there's a lot of history of the Holy Spirit working in humanity between those events. And that's what I want to talk about over the next few months. So... 
That concludes my, we're not done, we're not done, but that includes my summary of the first class. So, now we're going to move on to my summary of the second class. And does anyone remember what that was about? I don't. <laughs> no, I do. <laughs> um, what we talked about was the canonicity of Scripture. Does anyone know what that is? Does anyone want to volunteer? Okay, so the canonicity of Scripture is the canon are the accepted books of the Bible. Why these books are Scripture and why other books that people say are Scripture are not. Now, why, why did we start with this as the jumping off point into church history rather than just picking up at the end of Acts? Because the common thread that's going to be running through all of church history is Scripture. I mean, obviously, the common thread is Jesus Christ. That's not, I'm not discounting that. You don't understand what I'm saying. But people's knowledge of him and interaction with him and, and all of these things are founded on what they take from Scripture. And so what Scripture consists of is something that we should st establish at the beginning so that when, as we look at the history, other people are saying, no, this is part of the Bible, we can say, no, we know, we know what it is. Does that make sense? Okay. So, again, I don't know how you talk about the canonicity of Scripture in a meaningful way in 17 minutes. So this is probably not going to be a meaningful way, but at least it will point us in a direction, okay? So please bear with me. Okay, so how many books are there in the New Testament? I used to know that off the top of my head, but just because my brain is thinking ahead, I couldn't remember the number just now. So I asked a question, I didn't, couldn't think of the answer. 28. So how many books in the Bible? 66. So 28 in the New Testament. So when we talk about the canonicity of Scripture, and we talk about the 66 books, and the 28 in the New Testament, and then there's the Old Testament, we talk about, we're, we're, in a way we're talking about two different things. Because the Old Testament, we are inheriting from God's people, right? And so, has Judaism persisted outside of Christianity? Yeah. You know, and to the, to the Lord's dismay. And, but, that does for us one thing, which is we know which books of the... The, the Jews that still accept. So they don't look at other books that some people want to include in the, New, in the Old Testament and consider them Scripture. At best, some of them will consider them what they call deuterocanon, which is a secondary canon, but it's not the primary Scripture. Does anyone know what those books are called nowadays? What? The Apocrypha, yeah. So books like 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Maccabees, 1st and 2nd Ezra, 
Tobit, Judith. Those are all books that were written in Greek that the Jews recognize as having some value, but they do not consider them the Word of God. So the, the question as far as what is the Old Testament in a lot of ways is settled by the Jews themselves. Does that make sense? So we're not as worried about that. And people generally aren't coming at the church and saying, well, you need to recognize this book or you need to recognize that book as Scripture. Those are books that come in the New Testament. And so those are books some of you may have heard of called things like, the most famous is the Gospel of Thomas. Has anyone ever heard of the Gospel of Thomas? Yeah. There are a lot of other false Gospels. We call them Gnostic Gospels. And they, the Gnostics were a pseudo-Christian, but really, I'm going to throw a a Greek word at you, Neoplatonic uh, philosophical group. It was basically Neoplatonist philosophy with Christian clothing put on. So, kind of like how Mormonism now is basically Greek polytheism with Christian clothing put on. Uh, so, that was, the Gnostics were the first really, I don't want to say organized, but widespread assault on the church to corrupt the church. And we're not 100% sure, but a lot of scholars, and I think there's some good case for this, and it doesn't affect the value of the books, but that the books of First John and Jude were written to counter Gnosticism. For example, uh, Gnostics believe that all physical reality is corrupt and evil, and that the only good things, the only pure things are spiritual. Now, obviously, that runs counter to little things like the incarnation. That's an understatement. So, uh, you know, if God, if the Son of God is taking on flesh, then there's value in flesh. I mean, God has, has He deemed it worthy, as it says in Philippians, to put on, you know, the image of the servant. You know, he, he, has, he has put on the flesh. Well, that's, that's not evil and corrupt. When God made these things, what did he say it was back in Genesis? It is good. So, Gnosticism is opposed to that. So, when you read First John, what was he saying? I read it when I read it. We've touched it. We've talked to it. We have heard it. We have encountered it in a physical way. Anyway, I digress. So, the Gnostics really, really, really liked to write a lot. And they liked to write things kind of like Mormons like to write things or wrote things, not now, but that sounded Christian and put on Christian clothing, but was in no way inspired by God, that the Holy Spirit was a part of in any way, shape, or form, and really was a corrupting and deceiving presence within the church. So, the first, after the Council of Jerusalem, which is in Acts 15, the first really big question that the church had to face is, what, is, what does our Scripture consist of? So, how do we know what is authoritative 
and what's from the devil, basically. So that's going to be a, an issue that is going to be ongoing within the church for the next couple hundred years. And other big issues are going to come up, but that's the first one, and it's going to be settled fairly quickly. So, there's a lot of ways that we know how the canon establishes itself. And I think one of the ways that's important is that the Bible self-authenticates itself. So, the, the, the books of the New Testament and the Old Testament self-authenticate. So, first, what, what's the classic text on the inspiration of Scripture? Yeah, 2 Timothy 3.16. All of Scripture is God-breathed. So all of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so when that was written, that's an early letter of Paul. I mean, chronologically. Most of what he was referring to was actually the Old Testament because the New Testament was still in the process of being written. So he's saying all of, but he, he doesn't say all that old stuff in Hebrew is God-breathed. He, he leaves it all of Scripture. But then you see in the same letter, or I mean not the same letter, in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy is old, 1 Timothy is the early one. I was mistaken there. I was getting myself backwards. But in 1 Timothy, Paul equates as Scripture... Old Testament and New Testament. If you look at 1 Timothy 5.18, he equates Deuteronomy 25.4 and Luke 10.7 both as Scripture equally. So he is authenticating, he is equating himself, Old Testament and New Testament, both as, in effect, God-breathed. I mean, that's a different passage from when he says all Scripture is God-breathed, but that's what he's doing, is he is establishing that benchmark. So, we just have to keep in mind that all Scripture is God-breathed. It, 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 is all, it all fits together. I mean, what is our hermeneutic? All of Scripture informs on what? All of Scripture. So, if there's something that is pointing us to something theologically that you're not going to find anywhere else in the Bible, then that's probably not legitimate. So, when you read the Gospel of Thomas and you read about Jesus as a child strangling a bird and then resurrecting it, is there uh, any other... You know, I mean, that, does that... I'm not saying, does that event appear anywhere else in Scripture? Does the character of that event even appear anywhere else in, in the Gospels and, how, and, and, and the character of Christ? Absolutely not. So... That's a good indicator right off the bat that there's something wrong with that particular writing. Does that make sense? So that's something we have to keep in mind. So how, how did the church then go about determining what the canon of the New Testament was? And I'm not going to answer that right now because I only have seven minutes. But... We, we can, that's a, a long, I mean, again, you can go online and listen. I, will, I talk about it more. Same voice, 
uh, you know, it's me. So I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I just can't dive in headlong now. But I do want to say there are important benchmarks that we can look at where we can see what the canon was at the er, in the early years of the church, what books were and were not accepted. And let me just say right off the bat, and this is, this is really important, is almost all the books in the New Testament, their authenticity was never questioned. Never. The only books that had some significant questions within the church were books like Hebrews, mostly because it was anonymous. I mean, we don't know who wrote that one. Second Peter and Jude, and in some quarters, Revelation. That's pretty much it. Can anyone tell me why Second Peter and Jude there might be some questions about? Because most of Jude actually appears word for word in Second Peter. So they're thinking, well, how can this be? And there's reasons for that, but they were at least wondering, is one of these a copy of the other? There's reasons why. Don't, quest, don't worry about the authenticity of Second Peter and Jude. But these are important questions we have to answer. We should be aware that people are challenging authenticity of books based on these things. But so most of those books, most, almost all the books of the Old Testament, the Gospels, Acts, Paul's letters, those were all pretty much bedrock from the very beginning. By the year 150, so 120 years after Christ, now keep in mind, when I say after Christ, that's after his crucifixion. Were any of the books of the New Testament written right after his crucifixion? No. It took 30 years, 20, 25 years before Galatians which was written, which is probably the first book in the New Testament that we, to be written. So really, by the year 150, we're talking about less than 100 years after the canon had even begun to be written, and if John wrote Revelation around 90, then we're within a couple generations of the end of the New Testament being written. We already had in a guy named Marcion, who was actually anti-Christian, a list of most of the New Testament as saying, These, this is what they believe the Scriptures are. Twenty years later, we have a fairly complete list that survives to this day where we have the document that says this is what they believe. That's called the Muratorian Fragment. It's a long story. Suffice to say that by the, by the mid-fourth century, so by the mid-300s, there was no dispute at all as far as what the Bible consisted of. And the dispute was never about the core books. The dispute was, was largely, can we throw these books in too? And, but fairly early on, the answer was no. The books are what they are. The, the scriptures are what they are. So, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's important to recognize that early on, the scriptures were accepted as we have received them now. So, there are, um, and just in closing, there are three uh, principles that I want to leave you with that uh, help us to understand what does and what is and is not scripture. So 
One is the testimony of the church. Now, we're going to be studying church history, so the testimony of the church is something we should perk up and, and pay attention to because we're going to be talking about the church that's leaving a testimony. And that is that over the course of the early years of its history, they were quick to assert what was and was not Scripture. Now, keep in mind that especially early on, the church was not a centralized thing. I mean, it's going to take centuries and emperors to build a church bureaucracy, which is not a good thing, that is going to lead to deviations. We'll get into it, you know, in the Middle Ages. Uh <clears throat> It's not centralized at the beginning, though. So for these books to be accepted is, you know, by all the different churches, the church in Rome, the church in Antioch, the church in Alexandria, the church in Cadiz, Spain, they're all going to agree on this. So there's, there's an important work, and the agreement that they have is a testimony to the authenticity of these books. That's one. The second is that the scriptures themselves are going to testify to what is and is not scripture. So, as I said, all of scripture informs on all of scripture. I, I talked about that before. So, I, in my notes last time, I wrote this. Those that, regarding the books of the New Testament, those that have been accepted are good and pure and holy, readily testifying to Christ and his work. They have a beauty and harmony and have revealed redemption, moved readers to devotion to God, provoked piety, and satisfied the souls of those who long for God. They satisfy souls. The Gospel of Thomas, the Book of Mormon, all the other false works, they don't satisfy souls. They leave you wanting, and in some cases, in most cases, they will leave you worse off than you were before you read them. But those works that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that's the third principle, is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Those will fill your souls. The third, test, the third principle is that the Holy Spirit testifies also to the authenticity of Scripture. Those who are redeemed, those who are born from above, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, when you read the Word of God, you know the Word of God. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. When you read something that is not the Word of God, you will know. So, I mean, you can read the Book of Mormon. You can read the Acts of, the, of Peter. That's a Gnostic gospel. You can read all of these false works. And the Holy Spirit will guide, you know, you know. You're not satisfied. It will not leave you satisfied. So, those are just some basic principles. That is a very, very embarrassingly truncated discussion on the canonicity of Scripture. But hopefully it whets your appetite, and you would want to know more about that. And we could talk more about that sometime. Maybe we can have some other classes talking about that subject in greater depth. And I'm happy to answer any questions, and I am out of time. So, before I close, are there any questions to ask now that you would like? No? Yes? Okay, well, 
Come back, because we're going to be spending some, the next several weeks talking about the history of the church, and it's good stuff, I think. So it, hopefully we will learn much about who we are as a church and, and how we've gotten here and, and where we're going, and, and learn from the wisdom, wisdom of those saints that have gone before us. So I will close in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for allowing us to speak freely about these things, to do so knowing that there have been believers who have gone before us who could not speak freely about your work and your church, that we can do so freely and openly. I pray for those in this world who follow you who cannot do so now. I pray that we will be worthy of the role that you have given us to be your servants of your kingdom, and that we will win souls and add to your, the number of those who follow you, that we will bring you glory and honor. So I pray that this, is, this was an edifying and, and useful time, and that the, the classes to come will, will continue to build us up and strengthen us in our, in our own determination and also in our, our confidence that you are working through history. In your name we pray, and in the power of the Spirit, we say all this. Amen.